Welcome. You're listening to Gravity Healthcare Hacks with your host, Melissa Brown, Chief Operating Officer from Gravity Healthcare Consulting and self-professed healthcare nerd. Monthly, we will provide industry expertise and tips to help keep your feet firmly on the ground in the world of healthcare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. We're going to talk today about something I am very passionate about, IPAs the right way. I've been saying that IPAs are a critical weapon in our PDPM arsenal, and I think time will only prove this out. Not only does effective IPA management help to drive appropriate and accurate increased reimbursement, but I think it will also protect providers in the long run from scrutiny. Let's break it down together. I want to start with some of the key history surrounding IPAs, which, as we know, are the interim payment assessments. This is the MDS assessment we would do to change the daily per diem rate that a facility receives after the initial Medicare rate is set at the time of the five-day MDS. You know I like to call myself a healthcare nerd, and if there's anything I've been nerdier about in these last few years, it's been PDPM. I'm that person who's read over 3,500 pages of technical expert panel reports and final rules to dive deep into all things PDPM. And that background has given me a depth of perspective on IPAs that is uniquely helpful here. When RCS first hit the ground, RCS being the predecessor to PDPM, there was concern and really almost outrage across the industry because CMS was planning to severely penalize us if we didn't do IPAs when we should. They were going to hit us with the default rate if we didn't do an IPA within 14 days of the noted change. Advocates all over the industry lobbied CMS and said, hey, this isn't fair. We're rolling out a whole new payment structure. You can't give us a penalty like this. And you know what? CMS listened to us. However, in the overwhelming width and depth of the PDPM rollout, I think IPAs kind of fell to the wayside. The administration knew that the IPA default rate penalty was too severe, but instead of giving us more guidelines, they decided to just punt this one down the field. And I think there's a key reason why buried in all those technical expert panel reports and final rules. The reason why is that their proxy for IPAs was a significant change in status MDS, or a SIG change as we often call it in the biz. This is the MDS that we would do for a skilled resident under RUGS 4 and even now under PDPM. When there's a significant permanent change that impacts the resident clinically and lasts for over 14 days. Many changes during a skilled stay are transient and may or may not have a lasting impact and become permanent, so they don't usually result in a SIG change. Additionally, a SIG change MDS requires two key components to change and is not done if only one key component changes. Now we know that IPA should only be done when at least one key clinical indicator changes enough to change payment in any one of the categories. There's other limitations, and we'll talk about those later, but that is the key for this point. So SIG changes are rarely indicated for short-stay skilled residents and require more elements of change than an IPA. So naturally, the incidence of SIG changes is lower than that of IPAs, even without the payment significance tied to IPAs that is absent from SIG changes. And here's an important guide. We know CMS uses SIG changes as its proxy for IPAs. And do you know how often SIG changes occurred at the time the research was being done by CMS in 2015 to 17? Approximately four times per facility per year. Yes, you heard that right. Four SIG change assessments per facility per year, once per quarter. Now I want you to think about how many IPAs your facility has done. Even if you aren't focused on IPAs, you've likely done far more than that. And as you place even more attention on IPAs, you will probably do even more IPAs. 
And this is where the problem and the risk to communities comes in. If CMS established SIG changes as the proxy, which is not an accurate proxy to make for all the reasons we discussed, then they have placed an inaccurate valuation to the financial impact of IPAs. This means in the simplest way, they never realized how much IPAs were going to cost them, and as providers become even more savvy and take advantage of IPAs as they are fully allowed, this cost is only going to increase for CMS. What does this mean for you and I? This means that IPAs are going to quickly rise to the top of the compliance and OIG oversight for SNFs, and likely the rates of IPAs, especially for facilities that only do IPAs when the rate goes up, will likely end up on an OIG work plan and on your CASPER report. This means that even though technically they have made IPAs optional and have left the use and procedure for their use up to individual providers, this is not without risk. I say providers beware. Let's take a look at how IPA should be used and what the regulations have to say so we can make the best decisions about how to plan for them and when we should and should not do them. IPA should be done anytime there is a change in the clinical indicators and one of the first tier criteria that is enough to change payment in any one of the five payment categories of PT, OT, speech, nursing, and NTA. We know that they don't need to be done for, quote, minor day-to-day -day changes or expected fluctuations during the skilled stay, but those are some pretty vague guidelines and don't do much to help us determine when to do an IPA. A thorough review of the final proposed rules for fiscal year 2020 shows us that the first tier criteria is a list of specific items for each one of the categories. Nursing and NTA are pretty simple. If the nursing CMG would change or if the NTA CMG would change, then an IPA is both allowed and in most cases warranted. However, for PT and OT, it's a little different. The only criteria that applies for PT and OT is the primary diagnosis category. It's very unlikely that the primary diagnosis is going to change without affecting all of the other elements of payments, and so PT and OT are not going to be a key driver for IPAs. Now this gets us into an interesting element of ethics and compliance surrounding IPAs. I've been involved with training a lot of communities for PDPM, stand-up meetings, UR meetings, and triple check related to PDPM. I've heard a lot of various approaches of how communities uh, want to determine the primary diagnosis. It tends to go something like this, and this is a real example I experienced. Resident was admitted for a skilled stay with a hip fracture. They were receiving therapy services. They developed a UTI, had some pretty significant symptoms, and were sent back to the hospital and admitted to the hospital. The discussion was being had about which primary diagnosis to use upon readmission to the SNF. While at the hospital, the physician documented that the reason for the UTI was due to the catheter that was placed from the original hip replacement surgery. The resident also suffered some pancreatitis while she was at the hospital and was placed on IVs to address the infections. When she returned to the facility, the team had an interdisciplinary discussion about her primary diagnosis. The MDS coordinator stated she was going to use the hip fractures that would generate the highest reimbursement. However, therapy chimed in at that point in time and commented that the resident was not really there for primarily skilled services at that point in time, as she could only tolerate 30 minutes or less of total therapy services a day. They also stated that they felt she was in the SNF primarily to receive skilled nursing services, including the IV and other clinical oversight she was receiving from the nursing team. After this robust clinical discussion, I stepped in to clarify that what therapy had been stating was indeed correct. The interdisciplinary team should come together and discuss why the resident is receiving and requiring skilled services. We should not just pick the diagnosis with the highest reimbursement, 
but the one which justifies the skilled medical necessity for the skilled services the resident is receiving at that time. Remember, now that the primary code is tied to three out of the five payment categories, it is essential that we get it right. CMS has been very clear to say that they know that we're going to make the most mistakes with ICD-10 codes, and it's the number one compliance integrity initiative they plan to pursue under PDPM. So make sure you and your team are having these robust discussions and that the primary diagnosis you select is a directly related to the skilled services the resident is receiving. Again, it's unlikely that a primary diagnosis change is going to be the only indicator for an IPA, as this would usually be accompanied with significant changes in other categories as well. But let's talk a little bit more about selecting your primary diagnosis and when it could impact an IPA. I want to go through another example with you and talk about various ways which might help you determine whether or not you should select a new primary diagnosis. Let's explore this example. A resident was admitted with an elective knee replacement surgery due to osteoarthritis. They were slated to be in the SNF for approximately seven days to receive a short stint of therapy services and then return home. Let's unpack what happens if the resident develops pneumonia, perhaps from COVID, during the skilled stay. If the resident were to develop pneumonia on day two or three and was fairly stable and continued to receive a high-intensity level of physical and occupational therapy, then there probably would not be a reason to change their primary diagnosis. However, if that same resident on day six developed pneumonia, they had been ready to go home, they were planning to discharge home on day seven, and now we have to extend their skilled stay and they stay until day 20, this could be a good argument for proving that the primary diagnosis has changed. We need to do an IPA because it's not a knee replacement that is the primary focus of the skilled stay, but rather the medical management of the pneumonia. Just make sure your teams are discussing these elements collaboratively and challenging themselves to determine why the resident requires skilled service, and then make sure that stance is clearly evidenced in the documentation. Section GG is another key element for IPAs. And while Section GG is used in the calculation of the payment for nursing, PT, and OT categories, it is only considered a first-tier criteria for nursing. This means that if your Section GG score changes, the only time you're allowed to do an IPA based on Section GG is because it changes the nursing CMG. Even if it would change the PT or OT CMG and change payment, unless it changes the nursing CMG, Section GG cannot be used as an indicator for IPAs. And this gets into another topic I'm pretty passionate about, Section GG documentation. I've been recommending to all my clients to consider shifting into Section GG terminology for all nursing staff when they are documenting the resident's participation in and level of assistance required with ADLs. So what do I mean here? The actual information that the nurses' aides are most often entering into the kiosk to say something like extensive assistance of two people was required for a transfer. This older terminology is actually Section G terminology, and it's quickly becoming passe. Research has proven what we all already know. Section G is not a good indicator of resource use and how much assistance was required from the nursing team, especially because only the four late loss ADLs were included in the third letter of the previous old RUG score. We know that Section G just didn't work. And because of that, the MDS was supposed to change as of October 2020 to remove Section G and only include Section GG. And of course, with COVID, this has been delayed until 2021. But it is coming, and we can't wait much longer before we begin to make changes to implement the scoring. I've heard so many different strategies being used to arrive at the interdisciplinary Section GG scoring on the MDS. And I'm sure I don't have to explain to you why you don't want to just use the therapy Section GG documentation. 
There are two reasons for this. First, it's incorrect, it's inaccurate, it's non-compliant to only include therapy. Section GG was designed, and a great part of its success and accuracy is based upon the fact that it includes all disciplines across all times for three days. This helps take into account that the patient may do their best for therapy and require twice that amount of assistance from the nursing team, especially overnight. The second reason is how it affects your QMs and thus your bottom line. Research shows that upon admission, there's a significant disparity between therapy and nursing section GG scores. Therapy usually scores much higher than nursing on section GG, with therapy scores alone indicating that the resident is more independent and requires less physical care. And because the frequently scored level is what should be reported on the MDS, if you're able to obtain nine shifts of nursing documentation and section GG wording, this is usually going to trump whatever therapy is documented, thus reducing your initial functional level that is reported on the MDS. However, as we examine discharge section GG scores, we see that this disparity evaporates and now nursing and therapy are almost identical. Thus, only using therapy to contribute to section GG data will result in reduced functional outcomes and will impact your QMs. Additionally, the lower section GG score in the five-day MDS results in increased total per diems. Thus, having good section GG interdisciplinary scoring can impact your skilled reimbursement on the front end as well. All of this is to build my soapbox for utilizing section GG wording in all that you do. This should be the terminology you use to discuss resident status at morning meetings and UR and care plans. Section GG terminology was expressly designed to be universal across disciplines and across post-acute settings. Home health uses it, and we should too. This should be the only wording used by nursing and therapy and the interdisciplinary team to document the resident status and participation in care or therapy that day. Thus, I would strongly recommend that you make a plan to transition your nursing team into documenting daily using Section GG terminology. If you need help with the training, don't hesitate to reach out to me and I can help you to secure top-of-the-line training. This always leads to the invariable and very valid concern that only a licensed nurse can fill out Section GG. And that is correct. However, what we're saying here is not that CNAs or GNAs should fill out Section GG of the MDS, but rather that their daily documentation should use Section GG wording and terminology so that when the MDS coordinator does their skilled assessment of the information in the chart to determine how to score Section GG of the MDS, they have the clearest data to support the most usual performance. This is the simplest and most efficient way to have robust documentation that supports accurate Section GG data to drive outcomes, QMs, and reimbursement. Okay, okay. As I step down from my Section GG soapbox, let's shift gears and talk a bit more about the importance of speech therapy and IPAs. Speech therapy have quite a few first-tier criteria that we want to take into account, and that can have a powerful impact on your average per diem rates. There are three elements for speech therapy for IPAs, acute neurologic condition, speech-related comorbidity, and cognitive impairment. To be honest with you, in most cases, the neurologic condition is something that will be identified upon admission, so that isn't a key driver of IPAs. However, speech-related comorbidities should be something you follow closely from admission through the entire skilled stay. They include things like dysphagia, hemiplegia, or hemiparesis, and a list of other speech and language deficits related to stroke. We know in clinical experience that even a TIA can impact some of these elements, so make sure your team has a clear pathway for tracking and communicating these changes. 
A group we worked with recently implemented better communication tools for speech therapy, and they saw an increase of $10 a day on average in 30 facilities in just 60 days. This leads to the most common potential indicator for an IPA based upon speech therapy data, a change in cognition. Many residents may develop increased confusion or disorientation during their skilled stay, perhaps from a UTI or other medication issue, and this can result in increased per diem rates. The cutoff here is cognitively intact versus everything else. In the research done by CMS, they found that nursing resource use was not significantly different for residents who scored mild, moderate, or severely impaired on the BIMS assessment of the MDS. Now that is probably because the BIMS lacks specificity and it only captures the most significant cognitive issues. And in my clinical experience, as I'm sure you would agree, I have found that a mildly cognitively impaired resident usually requires a lot less assistance than a severely cognitively impaired one. However, this is just a limitation of the cognitive assessment picked by CMS and so we are bound by it. Pay careful attention to the scoring and have a mechanism in place to rescore residents during the skilled stay to see if the BIM score has significantly changed and thus could indicate an IPA. Now let's transition a bit into talking about the ethical considerations that every organization needs to make with IPAs, along with what CMS has told us they'll be watching. First, let me address the troubling word that CMS chose to use in the RAI to describe IPAs, optional. I would translate this as risky and watch out. Because they have left this entirely up to the provider's discretion, but as we know with CMS, that doesn't mean they won't disagree with our clinical decision making after the fact. Think about what happened with therapy over the last five years or so. CMS would look at a case from two or three years ago and say that the level of therapy services was not skilled or medically necessary. Based upon what? The therapy who was in the building treating the patient felt that the level and number of days that therapy was provided was in the best interest for the resident, and often they were well within the lines of what their peers were doing. And none of this stopped CMS from challenging that stance at a later date, saying, you did too much, you kept the resident on too long, you've got to pay us that money back. And this is exactly what's going to happen with IPAs. Let's say a resident came with an IV and we captured it on a, the admission five-day assessment. Then they were discharged that IV on day eight and the resident remained skilled until day 21. Technically, the change occurred less than 14 days from discharge. You could argue that since that IPA is optional, you don't actually need to do the IPA. Beyond that, you know that your payment rates are going to drop if you do the IPA, so you elect not to. However, what do you think CMS and the MACs are going to say in the long run? What if they challenge the last seven days of the skilled stay through an ADR and realize the IV was not being provided? Aren't they likely to deny the nursing CMG and make you repay the amount of difference that you received for providing an IV that you provided for less than half of the skilled stay? If we really think about it, we should get paid for the services we're providing. So whether the change is positive or negative, we should do an IPA anytime a first-tier criteria changes enough to change payment. But when does this go too far? To be honest, the only way to be truly safe and fully compliant is to always do an IPA every time a resident qualifies. But I do think we have some latitude here. For example, if an IV got discharged on day 14 and the resident goes home on day 16, do we really need to do an IPA? How many days until discharge do we have to leverage this flexibility? I generally recommend that SNFs consider a two to three day window prior to discharge as a reasonable flexibility. But the essential element here is your policy and procedure. 
And CMS has been very clear about this. You must have a detailed and clear IPA policy and procedure and follow it. It should state when IPA should be done, what timeline flexibilities you have, and what clinical indicators would indicate an IPA. What do I mean by clinical indicators? Well, for example, respiratory therapy services have to be provided for seven days in the seven-day look-back period to be captured on the nursing CMG. So, if you achieve this during the five-day MDS, but then the next week the resident only receives six visits, do you need to do an IPA? I would suggest probably not, but what if it was only five visits or four? What is your IPA threshold? And what if the resident was able to get back to the same level of respiratory therapy services the following week? What then? You and your clinical team need to sit down and discuss these various elements and detail them clearly in your policy and procedure. While CMS hasn't said very much about IPAs, one thing they have very clearly said is that the only way providers can protect themselves is to have a strong policy and procedure and follow it universally. You can count on it. If you only do IPAs when the reimbursement goes up, and you don't do them when the payment goes down, you will become a target for CMS. If you sporadically do IPAs and there's inconsistency for what clinical indicators you follow or your timeline, then you could become a target. I even think that if you immediately do IPAs when the payment goes up, but always wait two to three days to do an IPA when the payment goes down, you could come under scrutiny. And even if you have a stellar IPA policy, but you don't follow it universally, you'll have little to stand on when the MAC comes knocking. Take the time to craft the right policy and make sure your team stick with it. Let what is fair and right dictate your decisions. If you're providing a service that's reimbursable, make sure you're getting paid for it. But if you haven't provided that service in a while, then make sure your reimbursement is commensurate with the level of services you're providing. I sincerely hope this discussion has sparked some thoughts for you about what your organization is doing around IPAs and how you should move forward. Make sure you get advice and a third-party independent review of your IPA policy and procedure to see if you're well protected. And then you will be doing IPAs the right way. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's content, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Remember, it's not just what you know, but how you apply it that makes all the difference. Tune in next time as we interview MDS guru Melissa Kiter to learn more about ICD-10 coding for PDPM and beyond. See you next time.